Since the dawn of time, man has been looking up at the night sky in wonder and fascination. The stars, the moon, and the sun all proclaim a silent speech, beckoning us to take notice and to contemplate the great celestial dance and our own existence within it. From ancient civilizations and celestial stories of nomadic shepherds, to modern observatories perched high atop the mountains of Earth, to sophisticated telescopes and satellites that transcend the surly bonds of our terrestrial home, we have never ceased gazing with rapturous attention upon the stars. But what is our planet in the midst of the cosmos? Who are we upon it? The modern answer to these questions is often referred to as the Copernican Principle, named after the 16th century astronomer Nicholas Copernicus, who made the radical suggestion nearly 500 years ago that the Earth might be in orbit around the Sun. The Copernican Principle, however, is not about the Earth going around the Sun. It's not even a principle that was postulated by Copernicus. The principle itself is a kind of modern myth, a myth, as C.S. Lewis once wrote, that, quote, follows in the wake of science, end quote. So what is this myth of the Copernican Principle, then? And how has science helped to foster the prevalence of it? The Copernican Principle is probably best articulated by the late planetary astronomer Dr. Carl Sagan. In a nutshell, it is the belief that since science has shown us we are no longer at the center of the universe, or at the center of our galaxy, or at the center of our solar system, and that the Earth as a planet is but a minuscule speck amidst a mostly empty and vacuous void of space, that we have somehow been humbled, demoted, and deemed cosmically insignificant. Of course, this begs the question, who or what determines our significance? Scientists, astronomers, our size, our location? Our size and location in the cosmos have nothing to do with whether or not we are significant as a species. How tall does one have to be to be significant? Where exactly must one live in order to be significant? It should go without saying that our physical height and physical address have nothing to do with our human significance. According to Scripture, we are significant because God has created us in His image and has graciously given us a place in which to live, a place with a remarkable view of the rest of the universe. Through the prophet Isaiah, God declares, It is I who made the earth and created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens with my hands, and I ordained all their host. End quote. Isaiah 45.12. And cutting-edge planetary science seems to affirm this quite remarkably. In the last decade, nearly 4,000 planets have been discovered outside of our own solar system. Astronomers refer to these worlds as exoplanets. And what the data seems to be saying is that our solar system is rather unique. While our system has the rocky planets closer to the Sun, such as Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and the gas giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, further away from the Sun, many of the extrasolar systems discovered to date seem to be structured in just the opposite way. On this episode of Good Heavens, astronomy professor Dr. Guillermo Gonzalez co-author of The Privileged Planet, and whose specialty is the growing field of astrobiology, walks us through the remarkably wondrous uniqueness of our little biosphere we call Earth. So come and hear a down-to-earth conversation that will encourage and inspire you to see the wonders of God's creation and His loving care of us. As David wondered aloud, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou dost take thought of him, and the son of man that thou dost care for him?
Well, hello, Dr. Gonzalez. How are you today? Thank you for joining us on Good Heavens. Very good. Uh, and thanks for having me on. Absolutely. You are in our book and uh, the story of the cosmos, of course. And uh, this is the first time we've actually chatted live since we did the book. So this is kind of nice. That's right. <laughs> yeah. And we, your chapter is wonderful. And I want to talk today a little bit about, um, you know, the, the idea of uh, exoplanets and aliens, extraterrestrials. And, you know, you hear the news of the popular science talking about we found an Earth-like planet. So I thought today we could just converse about uh, the nature of exoplanets, the nature of uh, what kind of planet would be required in order for it to have life. Just a, just a very conversational discussion about uh, are we really close to finding Earth-like planets? How many planets have we found in other solar systems and that kind of thing? So if you don't mind, uh, just give our listeners a little bit of a background about who you are and what you study and what your expertise is. So uh, I'm an astronomer, uh, and my expertise is in the area of uh, observational astronomy, uh, as well as astrobiology. And uh, I've been doing uh, work in the areas of quantitative stellar spectroscopy, um, exoplanets, uh, the galactic habitable zone, and I dabble in some other areas, even having written a couple of papers on the moon and uh, trying to, uh, to see if it's practical to look for uh, pieces of the Earth on, on the moon's surface from, uh, that have gotten there from impacts on the Earth and Earth's past. Wow. Yeah, that, I've heard some some stories about that. There's a lot of different uh, theories as to why there are moon rocks or earth rocks on the moon. Is that correct? Is that? Uh... Yeah, well, and there was just in the news, I think, uh, January of this year, they found a small, I think, three grams of uh, earth material in the lunar samples that the Apollo astronauts brought back. Wow. Uh, and that's actually equal to what we predicted. We predicted that if they searched the... Um, the Apollo samples that they would find about three grams worth. Wow. Uh, so it was a nice confirmation of our prediction. And so, so that's the, very valuable. Uh, so the, the leading theory there is that something hit earth and rocks yeah. flew to the moon. Is that what it that's was? That's right. So big impacts on the earth, uh, oh, wow. blasted pieces of the earth's crust out into space and some fraction of that landed on the moon wow. preserved there since they were blasted. Onto and so this would have had to happen a long time ago and the yeah. moon was much closer. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So it's much more probable for the moon to have had uh, acquired pieces of the earth when it was uh, closer. Okay. That's right. Uh, I know briefly in your chapter uh, that you wrote for a story that uh, you had a fascination with Apollo and the moon missions growing up. Is that right? That's right. I, I was a child in the 1960s and I remember watching the uh, live TV broadcast of the Apollo program. I followed that carefully with from launch to, to landing on the moon to return. That's mm. really uh, fascinated me. Uh, I was becoming interested in astronomy at that time as well. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I've been interested in astronomy from a very, and everything space from a very young age. That's awesome. I, uh, we share that fascination. My, my math, my brain was not mathematically or scientifically inclined and I went the creative route. <laughs> uh -huh. I, I just, just a, uh, uh, a fascination with it myself as well with, uh, with Apollo. And, uh, I was a baby when Apollo 11 landed, but I, uh, I loved Cosmos and Carl Sagan when I was a tot uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s. And so Carl Sagan got, uh, got me fascinated in, in the universe. Of course, I didn't know anything about his uh, materialistic philosophies that were in Cosmos, but that program, right. you know, launched a lot of people's interest in, in cosmology and astronomy. Um, so that, that is a, a fascinating thing. And you write in your chapter um, that we are living in a golden age of scientific discovery. Uh, and you just mentioned briefly your, your work with exoplanets, which is like since uh, I think 2009 in the Kepler Planet Hunter Space Telescope, we have discovered thousands of other planets. What's the current status of this research being done in hunting for planets? So that's right. Um, uh, the modern era of exoplanets research really began uh, in October of uh, 1995. Okay when uh, astronomers discovered the first exoplanet, first planet orbiting around another sun-like star. And so just to define our terms here, exoplanet, all that means is a planet around, around a star uh, uh, outside of our solar system. Okay. Uh, okay, orbiting other stars. And uh, 
uh, early on, the number of discoveries grew very slowly. Uh, but uh, then, as you mentioned, uh, with a Kepler spacecraft, mm-hmm. uh, the number began to grow very, very quickly because Kepler is a relatively small telescope, only about a 20-inch diameter mirror, uh, but it's out in space. And so it can look for planets using what's called the transit method. Mm. So as a planet uh, transits between us and its host star, uh, it covers up a fraction of uh, the star's light. And we see that as a dip in the so-called light curve of the stars. So it's like a mosquito passing in front of a flashlight. That's right. And uh, so with the very sensitive telescope uh, Kepler in space, uh, they can look for even very, very tiny dips in the light curve. And so look for very small planets. Mm. Now, that technique had already been proven from the ground uh, in 2000. Sorry, in 1999, 20 years ago. In fact, this next month, November, uh, marks the 20th anniversary of the discovery of the first planet using the transit method. Well, so that fantastic. Was, That's yeah, awesome. Four, four years after the discovery of the first planet, which, by the way, uh, was found using the Doppler method. So you use spectroscopy mm-hmm. uh, and observe a star over time to look for the wobble of the star, the back and forth wobble. And that, okay, so planet. you can tell that's a, the wobbling of a star is, is, is evidence that uh, there's a massive object yes. affecting, its, uh, affecting its rotating action. That's right. Okay. And, and now the, the downside of the transit method is you can only find a small fraction of planets mm-hmm. with it because most planets' orbits will not be aligned so that it passes directly between us and the star. Yeah, we have so. to be directly in the plane of sight of the planet um, to see it. Yeah, we could be, that's right. if we're above it or below it, we're not going to see the orbit of the planet. So we're only catching those, which we are in line with. That that's right. Sense. Yeah. So okay. the way you, you make progress with the transit method, like with Kepler is you monitor a very large number of stars, uh, for a long time. So okay. the first part of its mission, uh, which was four years, it, uh, just stared at a region of the sky, uh, in the constellation Cygnus and, and also Lyra. And it monitored over 150,000 stars. Now, it's uh, uh, this is my understanding. Correct me if I'm wrong. The you said Vega, um, or Lyra in the constellation. That's, the you're const- right. But Vega is in the constellation Lyra. Yeah. Uh, uh, Vega was the the star system for Carl Sagan's contact, if I remember correctly. Oh, I think I think you're right. I think it was. Correct. But um, this this is a fascinating thing because, uh, as I understand it, the data from Kepler is so rich. Yep. that there's now an online database that you can go through and find planets yourself if you know what you're doing. That's right. And it's an area where uh, citizen science ha- has actually been effective, where literally almost anybody can go through and look through the light curve and look for these little characteristic dips mm. uh, in the light due to the transit of a planet. And um, I I don't know the number, but I'm sh- I know that uh, some uh, people working uh, – in that, not not scientists, but just citizens, have found some planets. Yeah. Now, I think at this point, um, the light curves have been analyzed enough that it's probably unlikely that anybody's going to find any more in that data set because the Kepler mission was completed uh, last year, I think October of 2018. Yeah, I knew it. Uh, the, the, the telescope was having some problems. It was. It has these so-called reaction wheels that help keep it stabilized, pointing very precisely, and... Mm-hmm. Uh, it can operate pretty well at a minimum of two, but then uh, finally another one failed. And mm. could, they had to actually make a, a part, part two of the Kepler mission after the first four years part okay. because of the failure of one of the reaction wheels. All right. Um, and so uh, they, had, they looked along the, what's called the ecliptic plane, so all around the sky in the second okay. half of its mission. Okay. All right. So now we have just over 4,000 planets that have been found mostly with a transit method, but also with uh, other methods like the, the Doppler method. Now, I know there's, in the works, I'm not exactly sure what the cutting edge is at the present, but there are plans for other uh, planetary telescopes to go up. Is that correct? There's one that was actually the, considered the replacement for Kepler called TESS, T-E-S-S. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it started uh, observing last year, I think it was last year, uh, so I, I think it's just completed its first year of observation and it's scanning most of the sky wow. uh, using basically the same method that Kepler used. Uh, so 
uh, instead of just staring at one patch though, uh, it's just looking over the whole sky and looking at uh, sort of each patch of a, a sky at a time for about, uh, if I recall, uh, one to two months, something like that. And then shifting over another patch of the sky. And so um, I, I think they're gonna extend the mission Great. Uh, for hopefully several more years. Uh, so what's, but, uh, the, uh, what's the population count of our known planets now? What are, where are we at? Yeah, just over 4,000. 4,000. So it's a it's a big number, but remember they've been surveying a huge number of stars. Yes, as yes. well. So, uh, but what they are finding is that uh, the fraction of stars in the solar neighborhood with planets is pretty high. Mm-hmm. Uh, at least fifty percent uh, have some kind of a planet, and now we can get into what what kinds of planets are there. Yeah, that was my next question. I now I'm of course I'm a layman. I I, I love this subject, but I. Uh, I'm certainly not as steeped in the research as you are. I think it was a study done by the University of Hawaii or somebody there or uh, where they were analyzing, basically from what we know of all of these systems, uh, the, the planetary makeup of these exosystems. And it seems like our particular solar system is not the standard, but more like the oddball where we That's have right. Rockies closer to the sun and gas giants out away from the sun and what we're finding it seems to be gas giants close to the sun rockies outside and away from the sun it seems to be our system seems to be an inverse of what we're finding is that correct yes that's partly true and a number of uh, astrobiologists have no begun to know publicly and state that the solar system is uh the oddball is it's the one that doesn't follow the trends so <laughs> wow <laughs> let me just uh, uh define what pl- what kind of planets there are first. So yes. as you noted, That's there true. are the terrestrial or rocky planets mm-hmm. in our solar system. There are four, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars. Then there are the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn. And sometimes Uranus and Neptune are lumped in there too, but more often they're classified as ice giants. Okay. Uh, so Uranus and Neptune, ice giants. Uh, so those are the kinds of planets we have in our solar system. But then there's another type that does not exist in our solar system, but which is very, very common among exoplanets, and those are super-Earths. Yeah, I've heard about that. It's like an, uh, an Earth-like planet that's about five or six times the mass of our planet. Right, so bigger than the Earth. Yeah. So in our solar system, the Earth is the largest terrestrial planet, and then the, the, the next most massive planet is uh, Uranus or Neptune, which is about 15 times mm-hmm. uh, the, mm-hmm. the mass of the Earth. Now, uh, people so have speculated... Uh, people have speculated that because we're missing this huge Earth, that it's the ninth planet. Well, there's uh, some uh, evidence that there might be a planet very, very, very far out, way, way beyond Pluto, okay. uh, that uh, they haven't found yet, but they, they've detected some gravitational anomalies or anomalies mm-hmm. in the orbits of uh, distant objects and they think something might be tugging at them. Oh, just so, enough for a, a good mystery. <laughs> yes. So that, that, that one's, it's funny because uh, there was a movie you probably may have heard of one of the worst movies ever made, <laughs> a plan nine from outer space. No, I haven't seen so, that. I'm going to have no. to look at it now. <laughs> yeah. Plan nine from outer space. So they're going to call this, or the search for the planet has been, is being called planet nine from outer space. Nice. <laughs> Because very far off. Well, you know, you 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 see when you hear these kinds of things, Guillermo. When you hear a scientist will come out with an article or something, and then immediately there's stuff on YouTube about Planet Nibiru and and oh yeah, conspiracy stuff out there. Right. right. uh, uh, Yeah. So so there's there's some real legitimate science to the possibility that there is another planet way out there because of some gravitational anomaly of objects we can see. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, so continue the uh, the the, the uh, demographics of our planet. Right. What's going so, on? So uh, so uh, so there is this class of planets that doesn't exist in our solar system, as far as we know, super Earths, and they orbit in amongst. Um, you know, um, if they were in our solar system, typically they're found amongst the distances like the terrestrial planets are in our solar system. Uh, mm-hmm. They're actually more like more like Mercury. Okay. Uh, pretty close in. Uh, so. Uh, we're finding that the most common type of exoplanets are either Neptune mass planets or, or super Earths. Those are, those are the two most common type. Okay. And so, um, and as you mentioned before, they're finding a lot of these planets that orbit really close in 
Mm. They're finding some of the gas giants that orbit close in. They're called hot Jupiters yes, or yes. roasters. Roasters. Yeah, I heard that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and so uh, the, a lot of these planetary systems are very, very compact. Mm. Uh, most of them would fit within the orbit of Mercury in our solar system. Wow. Really, really compact. And uh, so relatively a few planetary systems that look like ours, with, as you mentioned, with the terrestrial planets. Yeah. In, in the inner region and uh, no nothing more massive than the earth and then uh, the gas giants far out and then uh, but the ones that are close up to the suns are doing an incredible orbital period of like a matter of days is that correct? that's right so there there's um, a lot of them that orbit at about three or four days orbital period My in fact goodness. the very first one found 51 the uh, planet around 51 Pegasi yeah orbits uh at four days four wow. day orbital period that's, so that's way, big, be way way inside the orbit of mercury and that so just for listening audience that four day period is four earth days but that's, that's their right. that would be their year that's right the year that's is four right. days long my goodness that's amazing and so um, uh, we've been able to measure the sizes and the masses of the planet so you have to be careful in astronomy I always tell my students this be careful not to use size and mass as synonyms because <laughs> in astronomy, <laughs> right, right. sometimes bigger, uh, uh, more massive is smaller. There's right, you could have like a, like a yeah. basketball and say like a grapefruit might have similar mass, but that's right. two different sizes. Good, good point, yeah. And so uh, we've been able to, because once you get the mass and the size, then you can calculate the density, which is just mass over mm -hmm. volume. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so we've been able to measure the densities of a lot of these planets. And that's very important because now you can begin to say something about, okay, what is the nature of that planet? If I can actually say something about the density. So if it's low density, it's going to be something like a, a gas giant, like gas. Jupiter or Saturn. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If it's a high density, uh, then it's going to be a rocky planet. Okay. And it might, be, it might be more like Earth or Venus. Okay. Uh, and if something in between, maybe something like Neptune or Uranus. Yeah, yeah. So with the, with the mass... Uh, just just for uh, an imaginative scale here, what in in your mind and, and what in the field of astronomy, what would be a mass that would be appropriate or at least a mass that would be able to sustain something like carbon based life? Is there a ratio? Is there some kind of yeah. magic number? Uh, it's something astrobiologists are trying to pin down. Just what range of masses uh, do you need? Uh, for for a planet to be in, to, so it could be habitable, and uh, if you, if it's too low a mass, then it's not going to be a hold on to an atmosphere very right, well. Right, right, and it won't be able to maintain liquid water on the surface. So something like Mars, which has an extremely thin atmosphere now, it's lost almost all its atmosphere. We think that's yeah, a hundred times thinner than ours, isn't it? That's right, and it's uh Mars is about ten percent the mass of the Earth. Mm. Uh, so it's. Pro and the only reason it has any atmosphere is because it's so far out from the sun, it's cold. And so the molecules of the air move around more slowly and they escape the planet more slowly. Uh, mm -hmm. But if it were up close, like where the earth is, it probably wouldn't have any atmosphere, probably like the moon uh, okay. at this point. Well, and so, so go ahead. Yeah. So that's the lower limit somewhere, somewhere I'm, I'm going to just guesstimate is about half, half or so the mass of the earth. Okay. Or more. And then you can't be too high on the, on the, uh, upper end you can't have too much mass because that gives you problems too then you have too much atmosphere yeah so to a planet that's too massive you know for human beings let's say on a planet that's five or six times more massive than earth right we weigh thousands of pounds yeah you would weigh a lot more on the surface <laughs> uh so there might be maybe a bacteria would probably be, be okay with that yeah uh, but then in addition the atmosphere is uh is not lost as you re in fact you retain hydrogen and helium Yes. The most abundant gases in the universe. And so we think those kinds of planets will be uh, more like Neptune. Mm. And so there's some transition mass, and we don't know exactly where it is yet, though there's some observational evidence uh, where it might be maybe a two or three times the mass of the Earth or more where you're going to have too much atmosphere. Yeah, it could uh, be. Retain hydrogen and helium. Right. The mass of the planet pulls down on 
an atmosphere. And if you have a thick atmosphere and a heavy mass, you have a crushing atmosphere. It's like a trash compactor, right? That's right. And it, it's just the wrong composition if you retain hydrogen. And also uh, with a more massive planet, because of the higher surface gravity, you have less surface relief. Yes. And so in other words, the surface is smoother. And mm-hmm. so you're less likely to have dry land sticking up above the ocean. So you're probably just going to have oceans. Right. Well, uh, that brings me to my next and most intriguing question of, of our conversation, I think, which uh, the direction I'd love to go. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of, and I know this from talking to, to people that we've worked with in our book, um, the, the, the guys in the trenches doing the hard science sometimes kind of frown upon the popular scientific American headlines that say, Earth-like planet discovered. That's right. Now, is that, so unpack, as you and an astronomer in the discipline, unpack when you see uh, a popular headline in a, in a magazine or a newspaper or whatever that says Earth-like, is, that's not, where's that coming from? Is that the, is that clickbait? Is that, that's not something, yeah. explain that. How, what is that? I think there is a strong desire amongst many science writers and some scientists to, to want, in fact, the field of astrobiology attracts people who believe already there must be life out there. And mm-hmm. they're motivated to do astrobiology research because they strongly believe that. And so in, in some cases, they get carried away with themselves, uh, I think, and, uh, and over push uh, the evidence. And mm. so suppose somebody is doing research uh, and they find a planet that's about the size of the Earth. And so they, they write a paper and they may or may not use the word Earth-like, but a science writer might. But what they, if they want to be honest with them, so they should say Earth size. That's mm. all their evidence indicates. It's an Earth size planet. Uh, it doesn't mean it's going to be Earth-like. You know, Venus in our solar system is approximately Earth size. It's just a little bit smaller than the Earth in size, a little bit less massive. But it is, hey, this is Halloween. Yeah, it's brutal. Recording this today. It's brutal. <laughs> it's, like, it's like hell on the surface. It is. It, 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 it crushed. Red. Just to just for our audience, uh, you know the, the the Russian lander that was took a picture was blasted on the surface for about two whole minutes or something, and the atmosphere of Venus crushed that satellite like an aluminum can. Is that correct? Yeah, it's about ninety times the surface pressure of the Earth. Good grief! And sulfuric acid droplets, and it's oh. it's really miserable. A very very inhospitable place, and yeah. so you know uh, there and as too many science writers, unfortunately push that they make that mistake of uh saying a planet to discovered is the most most earth-like planet discovered today you know yeah uh, but you make now, a you make a good point in the book that for you earth-like and i'll quote you here yeah to state a, that a planet is earth-like is to imply that you can say grow tomatoes and raise bunnies there yeah <laughs> <laughs> so that's what we mean something like the earth habitable enough that uh, we can have uh, lots of different living things. Right. So now what's happening with, with a lot of the observational astronomy is that um, you're discovering light signatures that suggest some of these exoplanets have atmospheres. Yes. In fact, that's, uh, that was an amazing uh, discovery when it was first done. I think it was, I think it was first done around 2002 or so, uh, where they, uh, during the transit, uh, they, they took the spectrum of, the, the light, uh, and then they take another spectrum when the planet's not transiting, mm. and they compare the two spectra, and they they look for very subtle differences, and those subtle differences are due to the light actually going through the atmosphere of the planet and yeah. absorbing some of the light. So when it's transiting, and so using that technique, uh, they've been able to detect the presence of atmospheres around several of the transiting planet. It's a very difficult technique, so yes. it's only been successful in a few exoplanets, but it has been successful. And I really recently read that one of those signatures had signatures of oxygen in it. Is that true? Uh, I'm trying to remember. Water is one. and then Water oxy- maybe is, is one. It I'm may saying. have been. Wa- water is the most recent one I heard about. I don't remember if they detected oxygen yet. I think it was water. I think you're right. I think that's I think, what, it, what it was. Yeah. Um, but but the- it's not too surprising because, you know, water is the most abundant a molecule uh, after hydrogen. Mm-hmm. So hydrogen molecule is the most abundant molecule, and then high, water is the next most abundant. Yeah, I mean, with the, Mars has ice caps. So that's right. Every, almost everybody in our solar system has at least some water in it somewhere. Yeah. That's right. Titan has 
Titan has methane, ice. but it does have water too. Ice, water, ice, ice. yeah, water, ice, yeah. And um, that's too cold for. Liquid. So this gets us into uh, because your book, and we we talked about in your chapter, there seems to be a kind of eschatological hope of finding planets within what you call the CHZ or the circumstellar habitable zone or habitable zone, excuse me. I can't pronounce that word very well. (laughs) I'm always habitable, habitable. Um, Uh, The the CHZ, this is sort of the, uh, the uh, alchemy, the golden, the, 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 the Goldilocks just right bowl of porridge. Um, There's, there's a lot more specificity to a planet, uh, a lot more requirements for a globe to be able to support the kind of carbon-based life with which we are most familiar and the details of which are remarkable. There are so many other factors involved just from reading both your, you know, the privileged planet and your chapter that, uh, that, that carbon-based life requires. From That's right. The, can you go into some of the, the bigger details that, sure. that, uh, that, that are necessary there? So we talked about already the size of a planet affecting mm-hmm. the retention of the atmosphere and other things. Uh, circumstellar habitable zone, or CHZ, uh, as the abbreviation, as you mentioned, is the dis- range of distances that a planet has to be from its host star so it can maintain liquid water on the surface. Assuming, of course, it has any water on the surface. That's uh, an assumption. And the early research that was done on this um, decades ago uh, they would just take the Earth and move it closer or farther and see what the effect was. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but if you're talking about exoplanets, well, you know, there's a lot of things that could be different from the Earth. Uh, like, like I said, maybe they weren't born with any water. Or maybe they were born with too much water, and then they're a water world, and you don't have any dry land, and that's a problem for habitability for a number of factors, one of which, for example, is that you need to, draw, to wash off the minerals off the continents to provide the nutrients uh, in the oceans for the living things. Uh, you need to have a magnetic field that's generated inside the planet to protect the planet from some of the cosmic rays and from the solar wind, which would strip off the atmosphere more quickly. Yeah, so did, with, that's a fascinating thing for me is the magnetic uh, yeah. field because the Earth rotates on its axis and that part of that rotation creates the magnetic field. Is that correct? That's right. It's, you need a, a, a conducting... Uh, fluid somewhere in the interior of the planet and that that's circulating and that's part of that circulation is provided by the rotation of the earth part of it from the temperature gradient inside the liquid outer uh, iron core and uh, we can see the effect of not having a magnetic field for mars yes spacecraft that's measuring the loss of the atmosphere from mars Mm -hmm. and how the solar wind is just impacting directly on the surface on the top of the atmosphere and just stripping it away. Just scraping it off. Yeah. And uh, so it's a kind of erosion, solar wind erosion, that's now well known and well well measured. And we know, we know that's an important factor. Mm. Uh, so magnetic field is important. You need to have a mix of dry land and oceans. You need to have all these minerals and elements that life needs. Uh, but even a single single-celled organism like a bacterium need something like seven, 16 or 17 essential elements. Wow. And for humans, add another 10 to that. Yes. So roughly 26 or so, 27 essential elements for humans. And these elements, of course, need to be available, be available in the right abundance, in the right chemical forms. Nitrogen is a very important one, for example. But we can't just use the ordinary nitrogen in the atmosphere. as N2, it's very inert. It has to be converted to something that organisms can use, mm-hmm. uh, nitrates. And uh, that's done by organisms in the soil. Also, lightning generates some of that, and uh, some UV from the sun generates mm-hmm. some of that. Uh, so, some so, so the chemical elements have to be not just available and abundant, but in, be in the right chemical form uh, yeah. for living things to use. And then it brings up the the interesting conundrum of what kind of sun it has to be. Yes, because our sun is very stable. That's uh, right. You you know, as you said, we're talking about we're recording this on Halloween, and uh, there are a lot of stars are just violent, um, explosive, and and lethal and deadly to any sort of life that might be in and around a planet by it. What uh, what are the characteristics of our sun that that are that are ultimately also unique to everything you've described already? 
how does our sun fit into that and, and what specificities are, are necessary for a host star? Yeah, so we are orbiting around a star that's pretty stable. Um, it's among a relatively rare star. Hmm. Uh, about 90 to 92% of stars, at, at least 90 to 92% are less massive than the sun. Wow. So an easier way of saying that is the sun is amongst the most the eight or so most massive percent most massive stars so it's a so dwarf is very appropriate yeah yeah uh, it's a it's called a dwarf mm-hmm. uh compared to a, what it could be a red giant or super giant <laughs> right uh, uh but we uh we live in um around a, what's called a main sequence or dwarf star and again it's amongst the more massive stars and the less massive stars red dwarfs um are much more common and they also tend to be uh much more temperamental mm-hmm. in their energy output. Uh, they have violent, powerful flares mm-hmm. uh, and just larger variability in their light output, uh, all that which would lead to larger climate variations on the planets right. orbiting them and also lot, uh, energy radiation hitting their, their atmospheres and maybe in reaching the surface. Well, it's like Betelgeuse. I know when Hubble, one of the first stars that Hubble took a picture of was Betelgeuse and it looked like it wasn't a nice round circle it was more like a it was more like a, a, a fried egg uh, yeah that's a, a super giant one of those yeah. rare super giants it's so big and the atmosphere actually goes out if you put it in our solar system it, was, it would reach out something like to the orbit of mars yeah it's incredible such a big star yeah uh, but these red dwarfs that i'm talking about are at the extreme opposite end of the size scale they're they're quite a bit smaller than the sun mm-hmm. and uh so uh we do find planets around them as well and we find uh, planets even uh, orbiting close enough to be in the circumstellar habitable zones mm. of stars. Now, uh, so there could be planets with, that could have liquid water in the surface around uh, these red dwarfs. But as I mentioned, uh, a lot of them are much more temperamental than the sun and their energy yeah. are much greater. And, and then so, you get into, yeah, there are into there. The, the problem of if it's a, it's a smaller star, it's a cooler star then a planet that would need to support life would have to be closer to the star. Yeah. But then the closer you get to the star, the more potential for tidal locking. That's right. Yeah. Uh, so, explain what tidal locking is. So tidal locking is an example of that. You can see uh, in your own night, uh, night sky is the moon. The yes. moon has been tidally locked with the earth. And so it always shows us the same face. Mm. Uh, so imagine that with a planet going around a star, always showing the star its same face. So one side is always bathed in sunlight the other side is always in shadow wow so, yeah. uh, if you have an atmosphere like the earth's it would lead to very large temperature differences between the day and night sides you'd have to have a very thick atmosphere of carbon dioxide yeah one you one side more, of the yeah. planet would be day all the time and one side of yeah. the planet would be night all the time yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah so i think red dwarfs are not for for those reasons we just covered and others not good candidates mm. uh, for life even though they do have circumstellar habitable zones that we can define for them and they have planets in those zones. Uh, again, there are all kinds of other factors that come into play, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. The other fascinating thing that you, you mentioned in, in both your privileged planet and in your chapter is uh, um, I think it was the, the uh, I don't know where you mentioned it. Um, maybe you didn't, maybe I just read it somewhere. Uh, how many of the 4,000 or so exoplanets that we have found fit inside the uh, habitable range? I don't have the number off the top of my head. It's not large at all. And so uh, if you want like the number of potentially habitable planets, so roughly in the Earth size range and also in the CHZ together, those two factors, Mm -hmm. it's just a handful. And the number changed last year because of uh, results from uh, the Gaia spacecraft. Yes. Uh, Now Gaia is the latest uh, what's called astrometric satellite to measure uh, precise positions of stars on the sky, and in particular to measure that what's called the parallax effect. Mm-hmm. And parallax is an effect due to the changing position of a star in the sky due to the Earth going around the sun. So it's a reflex motion. So it allows us to measure the distances to the stars very, very directly. And this mission is just amazing. It's been producing uh, what's like a billion stars. It's observed something like wow. that to unprecedented precision. So now we have much, much greater precision in getting the distances to the stars, including stars that host planets. 
And so by getting the accurate distance to the star, then you can figure out how luminous the star is. Yeah. Precisely where the, ha the circumstellar habitable zone is around that star. So we've been able to refine the calculations of the CHZs around planets that host stars and then figure out, okay, what, what planets are actually in the CHZs. So the numbers have changed in the last year because of those new results and they've gone down. Okay. Uh, so the planets they thought were in the CHZs because of the changed luminosities of the stars from due to Gaia measurements now are now no longer in the CHZ. Um, so it, I don't, I just don't remember, but it's something like a small handful of stars okay. are in the CHZ and might be the size, roughly the size of the earth. And this leads me Very to, tiny uh, number. yeah, this leads me to the next thing that you mentioned in both your chapter and your privileged planet book uh, with Dr. Richards, the idea that it's not just all of the chemicals and things in earth and the sun uh, that makes our planet unique, but it seems to be the ideal location for observing and exploring the universe. Can That's you right. Unpack the details of that. Yeah. So the new idea that we presented in, in the book, the privileged planet is that uh, not only do we live in a universe that's fine tuned for life, that's been known and uh, that the parameters of the earth and the solar system also have to be fine-tuned for life, uh, but that we seem to be living on a planet that offers exceptional opportunities to do science. And uh, those other bodies, or the, those other systems, planets or planetary systems, um, that are very different from the earth don't offer as good opportunities to do science. So it seems that here on the earth, there is a convergence of the conditions needed for to do for life and the conditions needed to do science. Wow. It's an unusual pattern. That, uh, and so we, we present in each chapter in the privileged planet, a different case illustrating that. So yes. it's kind of a cumulative case. It builds up as you have more and more examples of it. Mm -hmm. And we start with the example of solar eclipses. Yeah, that was a fascinating chapter. So uh, the earth seems to be especially well situated in the solar system uh, and having a large moon uh, to be able to observe actually the best e eclipses in the solar system. Mm. Uh, it's the closest planet to the sun with a moon. And so it gives us the largest angular size on the sky of the eclipsed sun of any planet that has eclipses in the solar system. Uh, the, earth, the earth's moon is pretty large in comparison to the earth. It's kind of unusual that way. In fact, it's it, the the ratio of the size of the moon to the Earth is the largest of any planet in the solar system with a moon. Um, it's some people have called it a double planet of sorts. Yeah, uh, and and you know we have to be located within circumstellar habitable zone, right, to have life on the Earth. Mm -hmm. But that establishes how big your sun will look on your sky, right? Yes. Because being in the circumstellar habitable zone says, okay, you have to be this certain distance from the star to have liquid water on the surface. But that also tells you something else. It tells you, okay, then your sun is going to look this particular size on your sky. And it's about half a degree. Mm -hmm. Well, how big is the angular size of the moon on our sky? Half a degree. Half a degree. People have noted that <laughs> coincidence for a long time. Yes, how about that? And they just, okay, shrug their shoulders. Okay, that's a curious coincidence, you know, uh -huh. and moved on. Right. And nobody's really had an explanation for it. Well, we have an explanation for it. Yes. Uh, the moon also makes the earth more habitable in several ways. Uh, so this large moon in, uh, around the earth helps keep the earth's rotation axis more stable. Mm -hmm. It also helps uh, with the tides. Some of mm -hmm. the uh, energy from the moon's orbit is uh, dissipated in the oceans, um, leading to more circulation, a better circulation of the oceans, mm -hmm. uh, which is very important for, for climate stability and also mixing nutrients. Uh, and like the tides, washing the, the, right. the minerals off the continental shelves and off the uh, continents. Mm -hmm. So uh, the, the large, relatively large, relatively nearby moon helps make the Earth more habitable. And uh, so it turns out that the moon were just a tiny bit bigger, just a tiny fra fraction bigger. Uh, it's uh, help, helping, stabilizing helpful effects would, would not be uh, uh, effective. It would yeah, we would it, it, it the, the mass yeah. ratio size of the Earth to the mass mass ratio size of the Moon. Yeah, is uh is just it keeps the planet from wobbling. It keeps it stable, as you say. It yes. it, it turns up the oceans and the tides and stirs chemicals and yeah. stirs nutrients and keeps things moving and churning. 
and uh, it's it's just a unique, uncanny. You want to? Yeah. There's a point where you got to stop saying coincidence. That's just, right. <laughs> and so, uh, in fact, I compared to the Earth solar eclipses to other planets with moons, and and ours are the best in multiple ways. That's fantastic. Well, yeah, because you have so many misshapen. Thanks to that's right. The 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 misshapen the discoveries of Mars's moons and Jupiter's moons and, and Saturn's. And yeah. they have all these weird potato shaped things. That's like right. Deimos of Mars. It looks like a potato. And yeah. Um, and and some of these are like eggs, and and some of them look like meteorites. But we that's have right. a really amazingly spherical moon. That's right. It's very very round. Uh, the moon is ac- the sun is actually the roundest thing in our sky. And then the, the moon is pretty close, pretty close second in terms of its roundness. So it's an amazing coincidence. These two very, very round looking things, the same angular size in our sky. Yeah. Uh, just, just perfect for the and our and, and if I'm, correct me if I'm wrong, but Earth's orbit is the least elliptical in our system. Is that correct? It's, uh, Venus is very close. Uh, okay. So they're, they're very similar. But yeah, it's very highly circular. Uh, most of the planets are very highly circular. Mars is pretty eccentric. Mm. Uh, but but uh, our yeah the ours is that's one of the things that characterizes our solar system. I forgot to mention earlier. Sure. That's different from exoplanets. Is that our solar system is characterized by very nearly circular orbits. Yeah. Whereas we're finding exoplanets with a very high eccentricities. They're called. Exactly. Or, right. Right. Um, this this gets me into a little bit more of a philosophical question for you than I, one I know that as a Christian you've pondered these things. Uh, there seems to be in the in the secular astronomy cosmology this continued emphasis of, uh, of, of our insignificance. I mean, that, that's touted a lot. Look how small we are, right? Uh, Dr. Sagan's pale blue dot observation. Right. We're tiny, we're small, therefore we're insignificant. But uh, speak a little bit about, you're, you're more into the, yeah. the, speak a little bit about this emphasis on we're, we're insignificant, we're small, we're not in the center, it doesn't matter, we're nothing, look at the cosmos, look how, look how small we are, et cetera, et cetera. What, what do you, how do you unpack this idea of, of our cosmic insignificance? That's right. That, uh, that's an idea that really grew up primarily in the, the 18th and 19th centuries. It's not, it's been now called the Copernican principle. Yes. Uh, and it, which really has nothing to do with Copernicus as it no, turns no. out. Right. And we discuss that in a history chapter in our book. Uh, but uh, one way I like to look at it is, uh, okay, you can, you can think of uh, something as being insignificant if it's small, uh, but uh, at the same time, if it's uh, special in some way, uh, you can think of it as significant, even if it's small. So a, uh, a miner will risk his life to look for that tiny diamond in the rough, right? Uh, which is uh, highly valued, um, even though it's tiny. And you know, the, the Apollo astronauts looking back at the earth when they went around the moon, uh, uh, some of them said that, okay, it looks insignificant uh, against the vast blackness of space surrounding it. Just this tiny mm. blue dot. I like, and that's the view Carl Sagan has. Yeah. Uh, it's insignificant because it's so tiny compared to the vast universe. But uh, other astronauts thought, oh, look at this precious blue jewel. Yeah. Amongst this sea of blackness surrounding it. Uh, it's so special. Uh, so uh, people have been looking at it uh, with two perspectives and with this discovery that we made that the earth seems to be very special in, in offering opportunity for scientific discovery. Uh, I think it gives even more evidence to the earth specials before we knew it was special in its ability to host life mm-hmm. uh, and its habitability. And the more we discover this, uh, um, discover things in our solar system, for example, we see just how special the Earth is in that quality, supporting life with all these other dead worlds. Right, right. That people have speculated about over the years might have life, uh, but they've been not, not, those arguments have been knocked down one by one as we sent probes to those planets and find, find yeah. out that they're dead. But now we find out not only is it special in its ability to host life, it's very special in its uh, ability to, to let us do science and discover the world yeah. around us. David Bradstreet, and if I take your chapter in our book and I combine it with David Bradstreet's chapter on binary stars, one thing that struck me in editing the book and reading your essays was, my gosh, uh, how many times have we heard that our sun is an average star? Right. <laughs> it's not. No. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, David points out that, uh, that there's more than a majority of stars in our universe are binary pairs. Some do support planets, but our sun is yeah. unique in that it's singular. 
and as you describe all the unique characteristics as well. Um, but then, so, so this idea that, that the star is average, our planet is insignificant, yeah. just seems to be counterintuitive to, to exactly what science, the, the actual empirical scientific evidence that we're finding really does speak against this, this philosophical idea. It's not even scientific. Of, right. of our of our insignificance, as you say, it's not That's just right. because we're small. Nobody thinks E. coli is insignificant, though it's small, right? I mean, we're going That's to right. treat that with 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 care. Um, so it, it it it's it really borders on. Now I speak to this, if you will. I know that there's a there's a huge difference, and this strikes me as just the oddity of modern science, cosmology, and astronomy. You're in the observational camp of astronomy. You do the observational stuff. You look through the telescopes. You you collect the hard data and you draw conclusions from the stuff you're actually seeing. Then you have popular cosmologists writing, like Alexander Vilenkin, maybe Sean Carroll, and others, writing about the idea that the the universe or multiverses are filled with our doppelgangers. And yeah. on, on the one hand, we haven't found anything like a Earth-like planet with any kind of life in the observational camp, but in the theoretical camp, there are a million Guillermo Gonzalez's and Daniel right. out there. I mean, does that strike you guys as, as weird? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I don't find those arguments for multiverses very persuasive. In fact, I think it's dangerous for science uh, because uh, if, they, if they have to invoke in a multitude, in fact, it would have to be an infinity. Yes. Other universes to explain our one universe that we actually observe. You know, you're violating Occam's razor. That's right. Violently. You're doing great violence to Occam's razor. Right. And then you're also violating the principle of causality uh, because instead of saying, okay, this effect happened because of this cause, this, that's the basis for our, our discussion of physical laws. No, everything's just chance. Uh, in some universe, I'm doing something else. And in this universe, I'm doing this. And uh, I know astronomy in some universe, not because I studied it all my life, but because uh, just because of chance, I had all that knowledge in my mind anyway. There is no reason, yes. no rational reason for me to have that knowledge. It just, it's just chance. In some universe, I know astronomy, even though I never took a class on astronomy. Right. And, and in one universe, I'm a professional baseball player. In another universe, I'm an octopus. Right. <laughs> and so, and there's no, there's no reason to have rational basis for uh, uh, causes leading to effects because everything's just due to chance. Yeah, it's 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 almost like the inverse of scripture where where Jesus says, you know, with God all things are possible, but the right. <laughs> the secular universe yeah. is like with multiverses all things That's are possible. It. There you go. <laughs> um, so I just want to wrap up here. I, I do want to thank you so much for your time, but I want to kind of conclude with this idea, and, and this is more of a philosophical and theological than it is a per se a hard science reflection, but. For you as a Christian, and you, you talk about this in, in our book, um, there is this kind of eschatological hope that we are going to, that the human future, I'm reading Pale Blue Dot uh, right now for my book club next month, and that the human future, our hope, at least Dr. Sagan's hope was, and it seems to be like with SETI and others, all these other popular sci-fi uh, stories that we see on TV and movies and books and things, uh, Star Wars is coming out this year. Uh, and it seems like our hope, uh, the secular hope, is that somehow we're going to colonize space. We're going to explore stars. We're going to find other life. Either we go to these life forms or maybe they come to us. But there does seem to be some sort of cosmic hope that, that our salvation from, from ourselves or from right. our corruption is going to happen with the advent uh, or the advance of space and, and technology uh, that somehow in the heavens there is a hope for our future. And uh, so briefly unpack your thoughts about that. What do you think? Yeah, is that so accurate? Or I think there is this materialistic uh, hope uh, in uh, technology um, uh, saving us and uh, extraterrestrials bringing knowledge to us to save us from ourselves, basically. That knowledge uh, is the thing that will save us. Yeah. Uh, of course, we've known of civilizations throughout Earth's history, uh, most recently uh, Nazi Germany that had great knowledge. Uh, but uh, they did great evil with that knowledge. Mm -hmm. So I don't think knowledge by itself is gonna gonna save us. And we know that anyway, as Christians, that that's not what's gonna save us. Right. Uh, but uh, I do discuss in the chapter, uh, in line with the privileged planet thesis, um, how the Earth is des designed for scientific discovery, 
and this is something I just discovered myself recently, mm. that the Earth is also designed for space exploration. Uh, it's just small enough, the planet's just small enough, barely, so that uh, we can uh, launch rockets relatively easily uh, to leave the Earth. Yeah, because if it was more massive, it would be really hard to get it off would the be surface. Extremely hard, yes. And so the Earth is just barely small enough to do that. And the solar system uh, is favored also for interstellar uh, ex- uh, exploration. So leaving the vicinity of the Earth's orbit, once you leave the Earth, leaving the solar system from the Earth is easier for uh, our solar system than it would be for less massive stars. It's kind of intuitive, mm-hmm. but. Because the circumstellar habitable zone is much closer in, much smaller around the red dwarfs, uh, gravity is pulling much harder, even though the red dwarfs are less massive. Yeah. The, the closeness of the, that the planets have to be around those stars compensates for that. And so it's actually harder to leave those stars yeah. than it is to leave our solar system. So, and the fact that we have an asteroid belt uh, is very, very helpful, I think, for interstellar. Uh, space flight because asteroids are very easy to mine once you get out there and, and start doing it there's a large surface area for the volume available in other words the asteroids are made up of many many millions of bodies and they're small so any part of the interior of an asteroid is always close to a surface mm. so you can it's easier they're easy to mine once you automate manufacturing and mining in space we can start building large structures in space from the asteroid belt yeah so there's uh, there's a lot of a lot of uh possibilities there that yeah. i mean like a voyager just left our solar system this year i think that's right i think a total of five spacecraft have are uh have reached escape velocity from our solar system and on their way out so we have this incredible ability to explore but but to some extent without christ it seems yeah. like this technological uh achievement these technological achievements are tempting us to think that we can sort of save ourselves if we that's can. right and that and i i i speculate in the book that perhaps you, uh, the, the answer to the question, why are there exoplanets, mm. is for us to go and explore them and visit them, perhaps when the new earth and new heaven come. Uh, I, I speculate that perhaps one of the things that will remain the same, one of the things that will be continuous between the old earth and the new earth and the new heaven will be uh, the stars and the galaxies uh, and exoplanets. I why are there so. so many exoplanets? Yeah, yeah, I hope so too, because uh, I would like to think that they're out there for us to be able to explore yeah i mean maybe that's why the solar system is set up for seems uh for space flight yeah i mean if you read scripture the earth is not completely destroyed i mean it is but it's recreated there's a a new heavens as you say and a new earth and you know the details of which we're not given a whole lot but but it does seem like God is not just going to, you know, wipe everything out and he's, there's going to be a recreation. It's like salvation. You know, you're, you're, you're the same person, yeah. but you're renewed, you're changed, you're yeah. transformed. Um, but I, I love, right. I love how you end your chapter in our book, the story of the cosmos. I would just want to read a quote from you. You said, yeah. if we are to live eternally in the new creation, then clearly something has to change in the physical cosmos between now and then. God is creator and sustainer of the present cosmos, and he will sustain the new creation in a different manner. I look forward to the surprises he has in store for us. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. The big question is just what part of creation will be different? What part will be the same? I speculate that maybe the things that we call beautiful now, like the stars at night, Mm. uh, a rainbow up in the sky, or a a waterfall on a mountain vista, those things I I suspect will be the same or very similar in the new creation um, and uh, at least I'm hopeful they will be, but yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't know exactly what will. Well, change. sure, but Same. I think uh, I just want to thank you for your your dedicated. I know you've been through a lot as a as a Christian in the hard sciences. I know that's a that's a daily battle, uh, professionally speaking. I know you've had a lot of uh, trials and difficulties, but you are enduring uh, through that. And I I just want to thank you because your work has been a blessing to me. And uh, I just pray that you continue to, to persevere through this because I think your science, uh, the work that you've done with Dr. Richards and, and, and what you continue to do uh, is definitely uh, evidence of what the Psalm says, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork day unto day, pours forth speech and night unto night reveals knowledge. And certainly what you do as an astronomer shows forth just how much speech and knowledge uh, pour forth regularly from the universe and from the heavens. So thank you for what you do. Thank you. 
Um, it's been wonderful to talk to you. Any closing thoughts? Um, I just hope people read the book, The Story of the Cosmos. Lots of great chapters in there. And do you have, uh, is there a second edition to Privileged Planet or is it, is it uh, as it is There's actually right? a paperback edition that's coming out, I think, uh, this next year uh, from the publisher Regnery. Okay. Uh, we just sent them the forward. So the book is going to be the same, except it has a new forward and okay. it's paperback. So there'll be, uh, there'll be a less expensive version. And of there it. is a DVD available, yes. right? Yeah. Yes. So is that, is that, uh, that's not free. You can't get that on YouTube or anything. No. That's uh, oh. Well, you can find almost anything on YouTube, so maybe it's available there, but yeah, you have to purchase it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, uh, thank you again, Dr. G. And um, I will, uh, uh, I hope and pray that uh, that you continue to be blessed in, in what you do for, for God and bringing him glory through what you do in your science and all the best to you in your career and endeavor. And let's stay in touch. Sure. Thank you. Thank you.